Today we finish our Steadfast Love series on the strange journeys of Hosea and Jonah. And we're going to be in Jonah chapter 4 today, Jonah chapter 4, so if you could grab your Bible and turn there, that'd be great. I want to start by asking you a question while you're looking for the text or whatever, um, and that is this. What do you think is the most quoted biblical verse in the Bible? As in what text in Scripture is most quoted elsewhere in Scripture? So strangely, a lot of the most famous verses in the Bible are only appear once. So a lot of really famous passages or stories, you think, well, that's a really important story, but it doesn't get quoted anywhere else. In fact, it's only referenced once. So the angel's appearance to Mary only appears once, or the visit of the wise men or the shepherds, both of those happen only once. The Good Samaritan, the Lost Sons, the Day of Pentecost, lots of really famous stories, lots of really famous verses as well. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son only appears once. I know the plans I have for you, only appears once. Just goes on a lot of fridges and magnets, but it only appears once. Even Jesus' dying words, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing, or it is finished, but each of them only appear once. But there's one passage in the, in the Bible that is so important that it's quoted at least 27 times in the Old Testament and alluded to a bunch of times in the New Testament as well. 27 different places this verse gets repeated and quoted. And it's a verse that comes from Exodus chapter 34 and verse 6. And it's a verse in which Moses is asking God that he might see his glory. Moses is saying, Lord, you've got to show me your glory. And then God in response proclaims his name and he says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and faithfulness. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, or truthfulness. Merciful and gracious, steadfast love and faithfulness, merciful and faithful, grace and truth. As, as I say, it's quoted dozens of times in the Old Testament. It's like the definitive text on the character of God. So if you wanted to boil the character of God down to one sentence, and I don't know why you would, but if you did, this would be the sentence I would choose. Because it's the one that the Bible seems to return to over and over again to say, that's who God is. Isn't he worth praising? Isn't he magnificent? Isn't he merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, faithfulness? He's so good. And often you'll be in a psalm, you'll be worshipping with the psalmist about whatever's going on, and then suddenly this verse will just appear. And it'll say, he is the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious. It's also behind passages in the New Testament as well. So a, a passage like where John describes Jesus as coming from the Father full of grace and truth. He's drawing the God who's merciful and gracious and the God who is abounding in truthfulness or faithfulness. Same way. Or when Hebrews describes Jesus as a high priest who is merciful and faithful. He's drawing, again, merciful faithfulness. It's arguably the richest verse in the whole of Scripture. And it's full of reasons to celebrate and worship. But in one of those passages, in one of the 27 passages I mentioned, it is quoted not as a reason to celebrate and worship as you might think it would be, but actually it's quoted as a source of deep frustration and anger. It's quoted by somebody saying, I knew you would do this. I'm so angry that you're like, I knew you were a God who was merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And... Argh! It's a remarkable 
use of this incredible passage. And let's read together Jonah chapter 4. I'm going to start reading at actually Jonah chapter 3 and verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he didn't do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, isn't this what I said when I was yet in my country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a God gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life away from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it's better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry. I'm angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you didn't labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and it perished in a night. And shouldn't I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 people who don't know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? This is the word of God. In the context of this book and of this series as a whole, the, the last chapter of Jonah is, I think, is both very funny and very serious. I think it's very funny in many ways, and I think we're supposed to, re I mean, I've, I've almost used the voice of an angry teenager while speaking as Jonah, because I think that is kind of what he comes across as in this story. He's a, it's a massive strop. It's like the mother of all sulks, and it, there is something quite clownish about it. I think it, it, he moves from pantomime self-righteousness to abject despair incredibly suddenly in the middle of, as I say, one of the most spectacular sulks in recorded history. And I think generally in comedy, one of, the, one of the kind of almost iron rules of comedy is that it is almost always funny when you know that something is about to happen that is unfortunate to a person, and then it does. There's something about that sort of anticipation. You can see it coming. You know that he's about to fall down the stairs, disappear down a manhole, get custard pied, or whatever it might be. I mean, it's, it sounds silly, but there is something in us that just finds it funny when we know that disaster is about to strike a person, and then it does. You see it coming, then it happens, and then the person yells about it, and then you laugh at them. And that's just like a kind of age-old thing. And to be honest, I even find it now funny when it happens to me. I'm a notorious toe stubber in my family. My family will know that, and some of you know it as well. I'm just always, always walking too fast around the house without wearing anything on my feet and then banging into things and then stop, drop, and roll, writhing around on the ground in agony because I've stubbed my toe. And the other day I was with my daughter um, and we were we just gone out and there's one of those sort of wooden, we're out at this place, we we're buy, buying her a cake at a little cafe 
and there's one of these wooden tables with built-in wooden seats underneath. And as I approached it, I could sort of, I swung my leg over the side of the seat as I was about to sit down and thought, do you know what? I'm probably gonna bang my knee against the underside of this table. But I could sort of sense it about two seconds before I did, but I thought, wow, I'm just gonna have to go for it. And as I did, and then, it's just words cannot describe how painful it was. I just, I hit it so hard and it, right in that horrible place just under the kneecap. And I was just, ouchie! And I shouted really loud. It was, I should say, it's actually, it was in a, it's in a vineyard. It's in quite a sort of a nice environment. There were people dressed in their wedding outfits nearby. I did feel, even I, who don't often get embarrassed, I did feel like I probably overstated things a bit. My daughter was just blissfully unaware. But there is, even at the time, I was like, I can see the funny side of this. I knew that this very unfortunate, annoying thing was about to happen to me, and then it did, and then I yelled, and then I was able to laugh about it. And Jonah, in a sense, there is a comic dimension to this story, which is meant to prompt us to laugh, I think, that Jonah runs away from God, and he disappears off and ends up being captured by God through the most ridiculous set of circumstances, thrown into the sea, swallowed by fish, vomited out again. Then off he goes, all right, I'll go and preach, disappears off again. And then God does save the Ninevites, the Assyrian people, who, as we saw earlier in the series, the people who we've got murals in the British Museum of them flaying their enemies to death and throwing them off the side of city walls, but they get saved. They respond to God. They repent. Glory. And then Jonah's like, I can't believe he did that. I knew you were the kind of God who did it. And it, there is meant to be a comic dimension to this absurd story. And in fact, in this chapter, there's two separate occasions when Jonah says, take away my life. Like, he's so angry, he would rather be dead. On one of the occasions, it's because his preaching ministry has been successful. What an appalling thing to complain at God for. Like, I preached, they responded, it worked. I'm furious about it. It's like, what? That's the problem with you, man. And then the second time, it's because a plant that he's been sitting under for a few hours has now withered. And he again says, I'm so angry, I'd rather be dead. You think, there is a pantomime comic dimension to this story, and you can sense it even in the very gentle way that God challenges him. He asks Jonah the question that he often asks us in perhaps a more serious setting, which is, do you do well to be angry? You notice God asked that twice. Is that actually, is that really the right thing to be angry about? With all of the things that there are going on in this world about which a person could be angry. Do you do well to be angry? Really? You're more upset about that plant, which you've only known for 24 hours, than you are about 120,000 people and all of their chattels and cows and everything else all dying. Really? Is that a good use of the anger? And I think God often will say things like that to us and amidst the comic drama and slight caricature of this man. And I think it is meant to be a funny book. I think there's lots of things in scripture that are meant to provoke us to laugh by going, can you just see how ridiculous this is? But amidst the comic caricature, there is something quite deadly serious here as well. So the ending of Jonah is, like the book as a whole, is, is funny, it's, it's a cartoon. It shows us, not just Jonah, it shows us how ridiculous our self-righteous sulks and judgmental strops and temper tantrums really are by amplifying them and ridiculing them in the form of this man, Jonah. He basically says, Jonah is like you, just more so. Right? He's like Andrew dialed up to 15. And then I see it in him and I think, oh my goodness, that's so strange. And then you think, oh yeah, I do that. I've got within me the propensity for that level of uppity self-righteousness turning into... Uh, I've definitely got it in my soul and I suspect you've got it in yours. 
So it's meant to be funny. It's meant to dial it up to ridicule and expose. But it's also deadly serious. It highlights for us what is genuinely most offensive about the character of God and the gospel. What's genuine, not what our culture might think was the most offensive thing, but what really is the most offensive thing and what gets our goat the most when we see it in all its, in, in, see it with clarity. You see, in our cultural moment right now, most people think that the most offensive thing about Christianity is that it's too exclusive. People are upset in our culture more widely that worshipping God means doing all sorts of things that he says we should do, especially on issues like sex, but not just there. And we just don't like it. We say, so you're excluding that, you're excluding that. And I feel left out in it. I'm not allowed to be completely me if I come and do it. You're saying I have to do things your way rather than carry on doing my way. Now, of course, people like that are right that Christianity is exclusive. It's incredibly exclusive. Jesus says, Luke 14, 33, if you don't renounce all that you have, you can't be my disciple. It's incredibly exclusive. The only people who can come and follow Jesus are those who are prepared to die to their old lives and follow him on the Calvary Road instead. Take up your cross and follow me. So it is very exclusive. But that's not what's really offensive about it because every belief system is exclusive. Veganism is exclusive. You can't be a vegan and eat meat. Judaism is exclusive. You can't be a a Jew and continue to live an uncircumcised life. So if you want to be a vegan, you forfeit your right to eat meat. If you want to be a Jew, you forfeit your right to have a foreskin if you're a male. If you want to be an LGBTQ activist, you forfeit your right to believe the same things that a Christian like me would believe about the Bible and God's authority. That's just the way things are. You can't be that, you can't belong to this group and continue to function as, as if beliefs that are incompatible with it are still your beliefs. You've got to give up some stuff. That's just the way all groups work. So that's not really what's it, what's offensive about Christianity. I mean, people are bothered by it, but to be consistent, we should say, well, every group's like that. Every group involves some things that you do and some things that you don't believe and affirm. That's fine. The really offensive thing about Christianity is not the exclusion, it's the inclusion. It's the people who do get included that make people furious. And you see that throughout the Old Testament. You see it here with Assyrians. You see it in the ministry of Jesus with tax collectors, sinners, prodigal sons, Gentiles. So throughout scripture, you see people reacting. The real anger in the Bible is usually directed about the people who are allowed in, not the people who are kept out. Now you might think, well, nobody would do that now. That's a weird Old Testament, maybe New Testament thing that people did way back then. But no one would ever be bothered about who's included now. So just think about the news over the last couple of weeks. Remember Boris's honors list? Remember how angry everybody was about some of the people who got included. They weren't mainly saying, I can't believe you didn't knight so-and-so. They were saying, what? You gave a knighthood to Jacob Rees-Mogg or Michael Fabrican? There's a debate about Nadine Dorries being in the House of Lords. Some of us are not very interested in politics, but you may have caught up with this, that this is like people were really angry about who got included. If you ever watch a show like Question Time or a radio panel equivalent, what annoys people so often on those shows, people on the left and the right get really angry that so-and-so is given a platform. They're like, I can't believe you let them on the show. I can't believe you let them ask that question. I can't believe you didn't tell them where to stick it when they said this. I can't believe you allow this person to have a hearing in public media. There is something within us that finds it really offensive when people we despise are included or honored 
or blessed. It's true in religious terms, of course, but it's true in secular terms too. It's true in economic terms. It's true in political terms. People, there is something in us that goes, I really don't want that person to be favoured in the way that they have been. And it makes me angry when they are. And sometimes we would rather miss out on good things for ourselves so long as it meant that so-and-so didn't get them either. And that's the kind of dark bit of my soul. And I suspect it's there in you sometimes. And we have to think, okay, where is that coming from? Why do I feel like that? But sometimes if I'm honest with myself, I do. I think I would almost rather not have this good thing so long as it meant she didn't get it either, or he didn't get it either. So there's something very funny about this story, but there's also something deeply serious about it. And that's what bothers Jonah. He's all for God showing steadfast love to Israel. Jonah's like, yes, of course, God, show your steadfast love to Israel. In fact, if you gave Jonah a copy of the book of Hosea, he'd probably be fine with it. The book of Hosea, as you remember, we've obviously finished reading it a few weeks ago, but God repeatedly calling Israel to repent of their idolatry and then saying that I am committed to you in steadfast love. I'm the husband who never gives up on his wife. I'm the father who never gives up on his son. So Jonah loves all that stuff because it's for Israel. What really makes Jonah very angry is the idea that God in the same way shows steadfast love to the Assyrians who are the evil people who are out to destroy his people and that makes him absolutely furious. Verse one, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. Verse two to three, oh Lord, isn't this what I said when I was still in my country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a God gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. Do you hear that? There's something should be slightly uncomfortable about reading that phrase and hearing its echoes in our own soul. I would rather be dead than live to see you bless my enemies. That's what he's saying, isn't it? I'd rather be dead than live to see you bless, honor, favor my enemies. I've been reading recently about the history of the Troubles in Northern Ireland to be a story I know is well known to some church members and probably many of us remember it or have read about it. This kind of thing happens all the time. There's a lot of people who could almost literally have said that exact phrase. I would rather be dead. Some of them, of course, were. But I'd rather die. I'd rather blow something up. I'd rather kill somebody than live to see you bless my enemies. And you might see it in your own heart. Now, I have seen it in my own heart. It's part of my research for a new book I'm, I'm, I've been working on for a couple of years, I studied the story of just the most vile person I've ever read about. Right? He's, he was a slaver in Jamaica called Thomas Thistlewood, and I, I just never come across such a despicable person, still, and, and never have. And in the book, I occasionally refer to him as the worst man in the world, because I think he really was. Like, I, I think by almost any objective standard, you would read about him and say, that's just about the worst human being I have ever heard of. And then one day it occurred to me, if he repented at the end of his life, God might have saved him. In fact, God would have saved him if he'd called out to God to, to save him. If he'd repented of his sins in his dying moments, God would have saved him. And it really troubled me. I was actually, I was quite sort of, I remember feeling this kind of quite visceral sense of, oh gosh, is that what I believe? That someone like that could receive grace if they cried out to God. He might have repented. And if he had, God because he's merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, would have forgiven him. And deep down, it made me realize, gosh, 
for all that I, I mean, part of my, a big part of my job is I preach about grace and write, I've written books about grace. And I thought, yeah, but deep down, I basically think I'm better than him. I think that I deserve salvation more than he does because otherwise I wouldn't have reacted like that. That's what Jonah feels about the Assyrian. And the book concludes with God asking Jonah the unsettling question, shouldn't I pity Nineveh? Don't you think? Verse 11, shouldn't I pity Nineveh? You're, you're pitying on the plant. Shouldn't I pity this city? 120,000 of them and all their stuff. If they repent, shouldn't I show them steadfast love as well as I've shown it to you? And that question is left hanging. It's like a festering rhetorical question that you then turn the page at the end of Jonah chapter four and you're like, there is no Jonah five. We're now in, uh, into the next book. So what do I make? How does the story resolve? We've got no idea how Jonah responded. What would Jonah 4 and verse 12 have said? Did Jonah say, yeah, do you know what, God? You are right. None of us, and least of all me, deserve your mercy and grace and steadfast love. And in the end, I love that you're like that. And I'm glad you've shown that grace to the Assyrians. My bad. Sorry for exploding about the plant thing. Or did Jonah just continue silently sulking and fuming? And did he chew on that bitterness until it ruined his life? We don't know. There's at least two of Jesus's parables that end in the exact same way. It's fascinating. There's the story of the workers in the vineyard. You may know this story where all these people get hired at various points in the day, and then they all get told you get paid a, a denarius, and uh, like a day's wage. And then at the end of the day, the master gets them all in, and then he gives the guys who've only worked an hour, he gives them a, a full day's pay. So the guys who've been working all day go, oh, we're gonna get more, but they don't. They get the same as everyone else. And these guys are furious. They're like, how dare you pay us the same as them? And the master says, well, hang on a second. I, I gave you what I said I'd pay you. You seem to be angry about my generosity, not about my stinginess, but that's up to me, isn't it? And the parable ends with that uncomfortable question left unresolved. Do you begrudge my generosity? It's the same kind of question. Shouldn't I pity Nineveh? Even more famously, the parable of the lost sons. Hillary pointed this out a couple of weeks ago in her message. Jonah, in this book, starts off as the younger brother, runs off to a faraway country and tries to escape his father, God, effectively, and runs away to another place and disappears from God's destiny for him. But then eventually, through a strange series of animal-based encounters, ends up coming back to what God had originally called him to do and turns from the younger brother into the older brother, sulking, brooding, angry at the people God has included, resenting. And the father then goes to him, of course, at the end of the parable, goes outside the party and pleads with the older brother to come in and enjoy the party rather than fuming outside. He says, we had to celebrate and be glad, but we never find out whether the older brother does. The parable ends with, we had to celebrate and be glad. This son of man was dead and now he's alive. He was lost, now he's found, come in. And then the story stops. And then all of us want to know, what did he do? Did he come in or not? Did he stay that brooding or did he go, yeah, you know what? It is better to receive grace. And we don't know. The commentator Kenneth Bailey says, the parable doesn't end, it just stops, which I really like. And that's often what happens with biblical stories. They don't kind of end, they don't resolve, they just stop and leave you to think, what would I do? Have I got that in my heart? Am I an older brother? Am I a sulky worker? Am I a Jonah? Is the brother going to rejoice at the steadfast love of God shown to sinners? And will Jonah? And will you? 
That's how you know that you've really grasped the grace of God. The unmerited, transforming favour of God. When God's grace has done a number on you, when the God who is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness saves you, you don't only rejoice when he saves you, you also rejoice when he saves your enemies. And that's how you know you've got grace. In some ways, I know that grace goes deeper in me when I start realising, yes, the fact that God not only saves me, but saves him or them, that's when I realise I'm beginning to get what the grace of God really means. And I'm beginning to grasp the offence of the gospel, the scandal of forgiveness. Because that's when you realise that all of us in our sinful nature were enemies of God. We were all deserving death. We were all objects of wrath. And therefore, none of us is entitled to the mercy of God any more than anyone else. God demonstrates his love for us in this, says Paul in Romans 5, 8, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not when we got better, not when we become respectable, not when we'd made better choices. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God doesn't forgive you because of how well you've done. God forgives you because of how well Jesus has done on your behalf. Because when you trusted in him to save you, you and Jesus swapped places. He stood condemned in your place so that you could stand forgiven in his. And our filthy, sin-stained clothes were put on him at the cross so that we could wear his bright, radiant, righteous, spotless clothes instead. And that experience of steadfast love, that exchange of Christ's righteousness for yours is available to absolutely anybody who repents and believes. Jonah, the Assyrians, me, Thomas Thistlewood, the prodigal son, the older brother, you. We're going to share the Lord's Supper now as a response to the scandal of forgiveness. And it is offensive. But this table is the great leveller. Whoever we are, if we repent of our sins and we trust in Jesus, we are saved by the God who is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So before we come to the table in a moment, we're going to just pray and we're going to throw ourselves on the mercy of the God whose scandalous forgiveness is always available to anyone. Let's pray together. Now I'm going to lead us in prayer. So I wonder, perhaps we could stand and I'm going to lead us in this prayer. The words will appear on the screen. It's an Anglican prayer. I've used it before, but it's a, just a wonderful prayer introducing and inviting us to come to the table, not looking at our works, but looking at his works for us. Okay, so we're going to pray together. We do not presume to come to this, your table, merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness but in your manifold and great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table, but you are the same Lord whose character is always to have mercy. Grant us therefore, gracious Lord, as we eat the flesh of your dear son, Jesus Christ, and drink his blood, that our sinful bodies may be made clean by his body, and our souls washed through his most precious blood, and that we may evermore dwell in him, and he in us. Amen.